Good evening and welcome to Tiski Sour. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar as ever on a Monday. How are you doing, Ash? I'm good. How are you? I'm a little bit groggy, I have to say. It's not. I've got a non-COVID, oh, no. bog-standard cold, um, so I'm I'm hopefully not too drowsy. And if I sound nasal, it's not because I've been taking elocution lessons from Keir Starmer. <laughs> The brutal killing of David Amos has provoked a national conversation about the safety of MPs in Britain. Commentary on the topic can be separated into three broad categories. The protection of MPs by police or security, the radicalisation of potential attackers and a clunky mishmash involving questions of civility and online anonymity. Tonight we're going to take those in turn. So as we discussed on Friday's show, David Amos is the second MP to be killed in six years while attending a constituency surgery and the third in 11 years to have been stabbed at one. On the Andrew Marr show on Sunday, Priti Patel was asked if MPs, when they are seeing constituents at local surgeries, should have protection from police or security guards as standard. There are a whole suite of measures and Many of these measures came together post Joe Cox's murder. So a lot of we have something called Operation Bridger that was stood up after the tragic, tragic murder of Joe. And with that, protective measures based upon MPs engagement with the police, sharing information about, you know, your whereabouts, what you do, where you're going, events, surgeries, things of that nature but also making sure that your risk is assessed in a thorough and practical way. There are a range of measures in place. So this isn't about just saying, you know, sure. let's just go for option A, have bodyguards or security. There, there's a panoply of measures and we have to be proportionate in terms of the risk individuals are subject to. And, and that is based on one-on-one -on -one engagement with the police who do those assessments. Now, if I was an MP, I'd have a couple of concerns with what Priti Patel said there. The first would be that she is saying, oh, we've got all of these, these new measures which were introduced after the murder of Joe Cox. Well, five years later, another MP was murdered. So whatever was introduced, it wasn't good enough. The less obvious concern is that the reliance on the police to make assessments only works if you trust they'll take threats seriously. We have reason to doubt that. Paula Sheriff was the Labour MP for Dewsbury until 2019. It's a seat which borders Batley and Spen, where Joe Cox was murdered. Sheriff told Sky this weekend how the police responded when her office was daubed in swastikas and she was sent death threats. When somebody was leaving swastikas at my office door, the police took several weeks to actually view the CCTV that we had managed to obtain to establish if we could see who was actually doing it. And then they wrote to me to tell me that the man who had been doing it was having trouble sleeping. When we received a death threat at my office by telephone, it was somebody who had left a message on the, the answer phone. The police came to my office and they laughed. And then when a man was continually harassing me over a period of, of months on an incessant basis, the police went out to see him and told him that they sympathised with him. So that was Paula Sheriff describing how swastikas were left at her office and the police took weeks to view, to CCTV, to view the CCTV. Now remember, this is in a constituency neighbouring one where an MP had recently been murdered by the far right. She then went on to say that the man who daubed the swastikas had trouble sleeping. That's what the police told her. 
And when she got a death threat via answer phone, the police laughed. They told her another serial harasser. They told another serial harasser that they sympathised with him. This is, you know, shocking on so many levels. Ash, what is going on here? I think what we see in the experience of Paula Sheriff is unfortunately symptomatic of a wider institutional problem with the police. So let's take the CCTV issue, not accessing the CCTV for weeks. This is a pattern that you see across forces across the country. So when it comes to burglaries, robberies, even hit and runs, uh, police are either slow to investigate, they don't investigate at all, and they certainly don't follow up all avenues in a timely fashion, which meant which means that they could solve the crime. You know, we've seen an increasing proportion of crimes not being solved by police. And so I think that this is a kind of nationwide problem. And if a MP is being treated in that way, then, you know, for the ordinary person making reports to the police, expecting them to be actioned, well, what hope do they have? But I think the more chilling aspect here, and this has got very little to do with resources, manpower, uh, time or capacity, is this very callous attitude of, you know, laughing when a female MP gets a death threat, telling a serial harasser that you sympathize with him. I think that, again, this is symptomatic of a wider attitude amongst the police of, quite frankly, not taking violence or threats against women particularly seriously. There was a report which came out today in The Independent that the Metropolitan Police sent along the address and full personal details of a woman who had complained about a police officer's conduct with regards to a different woman, a vulnerable woman, in the course of attending to a domestic violence complaint. So I think that this is something which expands beyond the topic of violence, threats and harassment against MPs and speaks to that attitude, I think, of callousness and casualness when it comes to dealing with women's experiences of violence, threats and harassment. Now, that's a super important point because, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we can assume that however callous they might seem to a female MP, they're probably going to be more callous to female non-MPs. So we are hearing, I mean, over the past weeks and, and months, just so many examples of how the police, um, well, that wouldn't have been the Met Police. Paula Sheriff is, I think she was an MP in the in Yorkshire, potentially, if it was next to Batley and Spen. But it's a clearly a, a situation where they aren't fit for purpose when it comes to people you know, asking them for support on, on issues such as this. Um, I want to move on to the second issue I mentioned at the start. That was radicalisation. The man suspected of murdering David Amos is Ali Harbi Ali. He had been referred to the anti-radicalisation programme Prevent five years ago. The right-wing papers are predictably asking why more wasn't done to stop him. I think we all expected to see headlines like that when the identity um, of, of the person emerged. The other issue with regard to radicalization is the internet. Friends of Ali told the son that he had been radicalized watching online videos of the hate preacher Anjem Chowdhury. Former Met Chief Superintendent Dal Babu told Good Morning Britain that internet companies do have a lot to answer for. The internet companies have a lot to answer for. I mean, effectively, they'll need their tobacco moment where they're, they're hauled in front of the court and held to account. You know, uh, we still, you can still access horrendous videos of uh, extremism on the internet. So we really need to be looking at why that's still allowed to happen. And people have been radicalised uh, during the lockdown. And, and we need to make sure that we identify who these individuals are and deal with them effectively. So an interesting point there. Lots of people have been in making that today, Dominic Raab as well, that potentially people were radicalised over lockdown when they spent a lot of time just themselves 
and their computer. Um, Ash, I want to know your thoughts on this. How should we respond to violent extremism, whether that be of the far right, um, which was who killed the MP in, in, in Batley and Spen, or Islamist versions, which seems likely that that's what happened here. Sorry, Joe Cox was the name that obviously then skipped my mind very briefly. Um, what do you think about the solutions to this? Is it de-radicalization programs? Is it regulation of the internet? Is it none of the above? Well, I think it's important to say, as you've said, that there's nothing solid yet about what specifically motivated Ali Harbi Ali. So there were reports in the Times suggesting that it might have something to do with David Amos's connections to Qatar. Qatar is obviously very involved uh, financially and politically with Somalia. It might have been that he was radicalized online. Those are the reports that came out in the sun this morning. They'd been watching videos by Anjum Chowdhury. And then there were also reports in the Telegraph that there weren't any particular reasons why Sir David Amos was targeted at all. It could have been any MP, just happened to be a national figure. So I would always be wary of saying, well, how could we have prevented this specific instance when we don't know for certain what it was that motivated this absolutely dreadful slaying of an elected representative in broad daylight. But in terms of how you take a step back and think about the failures of the government's counter-extremism program, it's interesting to me that when you've got this case of Ali Harbi Ali, who seems to have been known to prevent but wasn't known to MI5, uh, you know, you've also got the uh, information which came out shortly after the Manchester Arena attacks. And a slightly different way, Jake Davison, the incel shooter from Plymouth, is that in some way they were known to the authorities, whether that was prevent, whether that was the local police or whether it was something else. So I think that one of the things that we've got to say is that, well, this kind of mass surveillance clearly isn't doing the job. It's able to identify vast numbers of particularly young men who have potentially been radicalized, potentially become very involved with extremist ideology, but isn't necessarily able, perhaps because it's collecting so much data, to distinguish between those who are likely or unlikely to commit an act of violence. So something's going deeply wrong here. I do think that what's going on online is part of the conversation. I know we're going to talk about social media in a second, so don't want to get too deep into it. But one of the things that at this point we just have to recognize, admit and get our heads around is that extremist material on YouTube, on Twitter, on Facebook, and also algorithms which serve people more and more extreme conspiracy theorist or violent material is that this isn't an accident of these platforms. It's actually central to the profit model, which is one, you antagonize users enough so that you keep them in an addictive relationship with social media. And then two, you serve them progressively more extreme material so that they're drawn into these communities, which they want to participate in more and more and more. Now, there was testimony offered at the Commerce Subcommittee in the U.S., I think last week or the week before, by a former Facebook developer who said, look, of course Facebook is well aware of all the problems with its apps, whether that's mental health issues, whether that's hate speech, misinformation, or indeed extremist ideology. They're not doing anything, they're not doing anything about it because they simply don't want to. So I got um, ever so slightly distracted because I suddenly realized I, I don't know where one would look to find a video of Anjem Chowdhury. Is it, as far as I know, it's, that's not being suggested to people in like the Facebook algorithm or the YouTube algorithm. I just searched it on YouTube now. There's lots of sort of news articles about Anjem Chowdhury, but I haven't seen any, any you know, his teachings. 
have any idea where you know what what are the websites where people are watching this because obviously if we, if we regulate facebook and then they're watching it on a completely different you know dark web website then regulating facebook and the youtube algorithm isn't going to do much is it like I said, like I don't know much about the specific case and not being funny or anything, but my algorithm doesn't really serve me much Antrim chowdery. It's mostly <laughs> Doja Cat. Um, but I'm not sure if that's something which, the, you know, the more you look at this material, the more it gets served to you, or if it's something which is happening on Reddit boards, or whether it's happening in terms of subterranean, like closed groups on Facebooks or um, forwarded videos on WhatsApp and that kind of thing. That I don't know. But what I do know is that particularly with incel and far-right ideology, that is very much something which just gets served up by the algorithm. So, you know, you start with the with the light stuff, you know, a uh, tiny weeny little bomb of Jordan Peterson and then suddenly it's like, oh, you're just that mainlining, you know, I hate women because none of them want to fuck me. It's like the alt-light and the alt-right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I feel like we we understand that pathway a bit more because a lot of that is on YouTube. I know that. Let's go on to the more, I suppose, ridiculous, I think is one way to put it. There is, I mean, there are some, there are some points of it which are reasonable, but others aren't, which is how this has become a conversation about civility. It seems likely that the man who killed David Amos was a violent Islamist extremist. However, in the wake of Amos's death, political conversation has once again returned to one of Westminster's favourite topics, civility online. This was Dominic Raab speaking to the BBC this morning about threats to MPs. I, I think a lot of people would be surprised at how widespread uh, it is, and not just, you know, uh, abuse, but serious concerted uh, threats. Um, and uh, we do see the constant vilification of politicians and MPs, um, uh, particularly online, but the culture, frankly. Um, and I think that it's incumbent on all of us, us as politicians, to measure the language we use in debates, particularly passionately held ones. Uh, I think the media as well, and the social media as well. So it's, uh, if you like, it's a team effort. Um, but the coarsening of debate since 2010, when I first became an MP, and the polarisation, and that has led to much more uh, personal attacks on the individual rather than just passionate debates on the issue. I, th I think that's partly where we've just seen something go wrong over the last 11 years. It might seem like a, a somewhat reasonable point to make if you hadn't seen what Dominic Raab had been doing for the past six years. Namely, comparing someone who wanted mild social democracy in Britain to a terrorist. In 2018, Raab shared a Times story and tweeted the following... An appalling indictment of Jeremy Corbyn, I feel for the party, for the many Labour MPs and supporters who will be just as sickened by what is tolerated at the top of their party. Corbyn joins mass killer on global anti-Semitism index. That list was collated by the Simon Wissenfall Centre. It's a joke, by the way. Their list in 2018 had Jeremy Corbyn alongside mass shooters and Germany's ambassador to the United Nations. The latter was for condemning both Hamas rockets and the illegal demolition of Palestinian homes. Don't take that list seriously. Another tweet from Rob about Corbyn compared him to Robert Mugabe and Ratko Mladic. As you will probably know, Mugabe has sent out violent mobs to fix elections. Ratko Mladic has been convicted for genocide. Corbyn just wanted to increase taxes. So these tweets are not the sign of a politician debating ideas. They are the tweets of an opportunist willing to use the most misleading and extreme slurs to try and delegitimize an opponent, opponent for whom um, there were many violent attacks against him. There were many violent attacks planned. 
In both of those cases, Raab was boosting articles in Britain's mainstream press. And this weekend, we've seen a hell of a lot of hypocrisy from the journalists who work in that sector. This weekend, Mail on Sunday columnist Dan Hodges wrote a piece arguing the following. It's not okay to hate Tories and it's time for the decent people on the left to say so. Um, In that piece... Um, Hodges calls on the left to recognise that Tories are good, honest, decent, committed public servants who just happen to have a different political philosophy. Now, we could have a philosophical discussion about whether pushing 300,000 kids into poverty through a cut to universal credit or giving immunity to border guards if they drown migrants in the channel are mere differences in political philosophy. However, we don't need to engage in such highfalutin discussion, as it's enough to point out that Dan Hodges has not come close to living by his own advice. This was an opinion piece published by Dan Hodges in the days after the Brexit referendum, which was, by the way, also just days after Joe Cox was killed. Labour must kill vampire Jezza, and Jeremy Corbyn is in a coffin. We can also take a look at a piece from Hodges in 2017. Dan Hodges, if you're still a member of Labour tomorrow, you are racist. Again, this is not someone who is recognising that his opponents have a different political philosophy. This is someone trying to delegitimise them in the strongest possible terms. Ash, I want your thoughts on this. It's incredibly frustrating seeing all the politicians and journalists who spent five years demonising a peace-loving social democrat as a neo-Nazi come out in support of civility and proportion in politics. When it comes to credible threats aimed at MPs. Jeremy Corbyn is a core part of this conversation. The Finsbury Park mosque attacker Darren Osborne said that he turned to the mosque attack only after not being able to get at his preferred targets who were Sadiq Khan and Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn's also been attacked in public. He was the subject of an awful lot of harassment from the far right. And that's before you get to his characterization in the mainstream media as a terrorist sympathizer, as a Czech spy, as somebody who is, you know, the kind of demon offspring of Osama bin Laden and Pol Pot. And of course, that characterization in the mainstream press and that kind of vilification had a direct relationship not only to the far right and kind of stirring that angry nest of hornets, but also then had an impact on ordinary Labour canvassers who during the 2019 election were punched, assaulted. That was one woman who ended up with broken ribs. None of that was covered in the mainstream media because that what that would do is upset their preferred narrative, which is about the unique nastiness and violence and agginess of the so-called hard left. I've told this story multiple times about when I was on Politics Live and the whole discussion was about the nastiness of the hard left. So they got me on the panel and then they had a ton of people who weren't at all sympathetic to the left all to tell me how scummy my bit of the movement was. And then as soon as we stopped rolling, one of the other panelists literally started screaming and swearing at one of the other ones and nobody even blinked an eye. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? So there really is from top to bottom in the media. And when I talk about the media, I'm not just talking about senior journalists and producers. I'm also talking about those politicians who are deemed to be sensible or, you know, you can you can work with this person. Is that part of how they police 
line between legitimate and not legitimate bit of politics is by selectively acknowledging and condemning harassment, threats, violence, immoderate language or violent language. Um, so this is a key part of how the machine operates. Now, I am absolutely not saying that abuse and harassment, threats of rape or violence, any of that is legitimate in any context. However, what is going on is a certain amount of, of filtering out depending on who the victim or who the perpetrator of that behavior is. And that's not right. I mean, it's totally that, isn't it? So like, who is a legitimate target? Oh, I, I was allowed to call Jeremy Corbyn a terrorist and a vampire and an anti-Semite because he was, he, he was all of those things. He was outside the boundaries of normal politics. You can't say that about Priti Patel, even if she does want to give immunity to border guards who want to drown people in the channel. No, because she's a, she's a mainstream politician. It would be very um, uncivil of you to use such coarse terms as racist when speaking about her. One topic we haven't covered directly yet is mentioned in a tweet. Nobody of note tweets on the hashtag TiskySour. The notion anonymity plays a major role is horribly damaging and bordering on religiosity. Anonymity can be shown not to be a large factor in this, and it's not only whistleblowers who need a degree of anonymity. For some, it's a necessary protection for mental health. Um, Ash, I want your thoughts on this. I'm sure you are subject to a lot more anonymous trolls than I am, because I'm a white guy, and also you have a lot more followers than me. Also, I'm your only anonymous troll, Michael. All my <laughs> oh. alt accounts just hurling abuse at you, you just can... to make you feel included. Any tweet from you, I appreciate, whatever, whatever the content. What do you make of the, the debate when it comes to social media anonymity? It's a bit odd that we're having it now because I, I don't think this alleged murder ha has much to do with social media anonymity. But you can also see why it's coming up because clearly MPs are thinking, you know, we feel threatened in this way and that. And quite reasonably, they're now sort of linking together all the things that make their job feel threatening. What, what do you make of the, the anonymity element here? While I don't think that there is hard evidence yet to suggest that social media was central to this murder, I do understand MPs and journalists talking about it a lot because when you're subject to that kind of abuse online and, you know, your phone, it's like this little portal to hell and every time you open it, you're seeing the worst possible interpretations of who you are as a person being thrown back in your face and being, you know, kind of muddled up with very credible threats. That is one of the most tangible ways in which you perceive and understand your own vulnerability. So I do understand why the conversation's gone here. I don't think it's all bad faith. I think it's kind of natural. But again, I don't think that there is enough evidence right now to suggest that that necessarily had something to do with uh, the murder of Sir David Amos. Now, when it comes to the issue of anonymity, this is where I differ a little bit from some of uh, our comrades on the left, which is I do think anonymity on social media creates certain issues. So from my own vantage point, one of the things that I see a lot is the same handful of users cycling through multiple accounts uh, because one after another, those accounts will, you know, racially abuse me, call me all sorts of misogynistic names or make threats. I'll report them and they get suspended. And I see them pop back up again and I can tell that it's them because they either have a kind of play on their previous Twitter handle or I can look through their tweets and see them like finding their other anonymous mates and bragging or complaining that they're on this new account. So I think there is this problem about the cycling through of accounts, which may be would be dealt with if you either, I think, had some kind of technology to pick up users creating uh, multiple accounts, or if you were, 
you know, took the much bigger step of banning anonymity. I do also think that it's not easy to differentiate between the anonymous abuse, which doesn't matter, and the credible threat that does. And I always was quite, I think, complacent about my ability to tell the difference until in 2018, I got an email from a CNN journalist who said, Hey, had you had you seen the, these tweets? These like quite menacing, threatening tweets. They involved like images of mutilated animals and stuff like that. Had you seen them? Uh, because the guy who sent them to you was Cesar Sayok, who was the guy who sent pipe bombs to progressive figures and organizations in the United States. And I hadn't seen them. I barely glanced at them. I think I can sort of remember like my eyes, like kind of grazing over them and thinking no more of it because when you get that sheer volume of abuse it's really hard to tell who the properly dangerous person is and who the really dangerous person isn't now again i think there's lots that social media platforms can do in terms of the powers that they have already that they're not doing to you know clamp down on that kind of behavior but anonymity i don't think is the core problem when you look at the abusive tweets sent following england's exit from the euros which by the way still hurts um 93% of those tweets came from accounts which weren't anonymous so it was possible to correctly identify who it was who sent those abusive tweets after the euros final so small proportion of them anonymous you wouldn't deal with the core of the problem if you got rid of anonymity also the tenor of the discussion on social media. It doesn't exist in an isolated bubble away from establishment media. Now, I think this connection can be quite complex and I I think it's oversimplified because yes, it is, I think, shaped by disproportionate focus on certain groups of people, certain kinds of crime, and those things then add up to a climate of hostility if you come from one of those identity groups. So for instance, being Muslim, whenever I tweet about anything, one of the most immediate and common responses is, ah, what about the grooming gangs? Now, of course, like any right-minded person, I think group child sexual exploitation is an abomination. I want to see the perpetrators caught. I want to see them punished. I want to see children kept safe. The only reason somebody is saying that to me is because I'm Muslim and one of the most common races you'll see in the media for this kind of crime this doesn't actually bear out in terms of convictions but in one of the most common uh ethnicities you'll see for this kind of crime is of course someone who's uh muslim or could be racialized as muslim so that's why it's being said to me but another one is when there are kind of gaps or perceived silences within the establishment media and i think that this is where if we're being honest with ourselves some of the like actually shittier behavior on the left can come from can come from this real sense of oh my god i'm being gaslit by the media i'm being lied to you know my sense of reality is being taken away from me i want to express that frustration with people who i see being involved in that game now again that's a feeling which i under perfectly understand i also don't think that a lot of what is called abuse for instance somebody just saying like i'm oh, no, mixing up the name the letters of your name or you know, shit like that that's not abuse that's annoying maybe but that's not abuse but the small proportion which does tip over into being abusive it is wrong even though i understand where the frustration is coming from so to sum up i know i've just been rambling for a really long time but it is because this is something i feel really strongly about i do think there are problems with anonymity 
I don't think that you have to ban anonymity in order to deal with those problems. And even if you do ban anonymity, you're not dealing with the core of the issue, which is how is it certain kinds of people become hyper-visible and demonized online? And why is it that the majority of abusive tweets are coming from people who are perfectly happy to be identified as the source of those tweets? You have to deal with those problems if you want to have any hope of tackling threats, harassment, racial abuse, ableist abuse, misogynist abuse, transphobic abuse, homophobic abuse online. I'm incredibly grateful you gave a very comprehensive answer to that because I, well, I mean, I have a, a great deal of admiration for you for the amount you tolerate online, but also you are probably one of the best positioned people I could be talking to right now on this topic. I suppose just as a sort of a question that sort of popped into my mind, which is if they did find a way to ban anonymity without catching people in the net who have every right to be anonymous or, you know, there's real benefits to them being anonymous. How different do you think your experience online would be? Do you think, would it be significantly different, but you think that the costs of banning anonymity would be so significant that it's, it's not worth doing? Or do you think that that wouldn't actually make that, that big a difference to your life online? I think it would make a significant amount of difference, particularly when you've got the kind of organized brigading, which comes from far right accounts. And these are kind of disposable accounts. So this is what happened during the uh, three oranges incident where I was falsely accused of celebrating the murder of three men because I posted three orange emojis when I posted a photo of me eating an orange ice lolly. Um, most of those accounts were anonymous, not all but most of them, and particularly the most violent ones. And that's because my sense of what was going on is that the abuse and this kind of avalanche was coordinated. So it wasn't simply that this photo picked up and happened to go viral. It was that at that time, Katie Hopkins had been banned from Twitter. There'd been this kind of big exodus of the far right from Twitter onto Gab, I think it was. Um, no, Parler. Parler was, was the app. That was it, Parler. And I think it was there that it was being coordinated. So those accounts, which were anonymous, were intended to be disposable just to like get this wave of abuse rolling. Yeah, the end of anonymity probably would have dealt with that. But I still think, and I'm open to being convinced on this issue, I really am. I still think that looking at the amount of power that social media companies already have and the amount that they're choosing to turn a blind eye to or indeed actively facilitate, that tells me that anonymity itself isn't the problem. All we're doing is putting more power in the hands of social media platforms, which we know can't really be trusted with our data, and saying, clamp down on abuse for us. The fact is, is that they already had an awful lot of capacity to do that and they're not using it. They're a lower hanging fruit, basically, where we don't have to make the same, you know, compromises about civil liberties that they should do before we start demanding anonymity. And we can cross that bridge when we when we come to it, maybe, you know, before we move on, just absolute solidarity. Ash. I, I'd speak from the bottom of my heart when I say I have absolute admiration for all of the shit you, you, you deal with so gracefully online. And we're going to go on to coronavirus, a topic we haven't surprisingly discussed for a while. In the last 24 hours, 49,000 new COVID cases were recorded in the UK. It's a figure that once would have shocked us, but we've become used to high rates for a while now. We also have a government telling us there's little reason to worry now that vaccines have weakened the link between infection and hospitalisation. This was Priti Patel speaking to Andrew Marr on Sunday. I think it's important to reflect 
as to where we are now compared to where we were. I mean, last winter, last Christmas, I, I mean, we, we were, it was difficult. It was absolutely difficult. Mm. Parts of the country were locked down. We were taking very, very strong measures. I think the biggest change, of course, now, Andrew, from where we were last year to this year is that we are living with this virus. We are all living with this virus. And of course, this year has been dominated by the vaccine rollout program, which has fundamentally shifted um, the landscape and where we are literally looking to, I think, the next few months on the virus. That was Priti Patel saying rightly that the vaccines have transformed the landscape when it comes to COVID. That doesn't mean high infection rates don't come with a cost, though. 869 people have died from coronavirus in the past seven days. 7,000 are currently in hospital. Priti Patel also rightly points out that these are nowhere near the catastrophic figures we faced last winter. Hospitalizations and deaths were way, way higher there. What we're seeing in a week we saw in a day back then. But perhaps the best comparison to present is not the UK 10 months ago, but rather our European neighbours right now. On this front, Britain has become quite the outlier and not in a good way. Over the past seven days, the UK has had an average of 620 new daily cases per million people. That's six times higher than the rate in Germany, nine times higher than the rate in France, 15 times higher than the rate in Italy, and a massive 20 times higher than the rate in Spain. This is, as you would expect, translating into higher rates of hospitalizations. Hospitalization rates in the UK are four times higher than France, five times higher than Germany, eight times higher than Italy, and 16 times higher than Spain. This is not a graph um, that makes the UK look good. You know, we're not handling this well. A similar gap can be seen when it comes to deaths as well. Daily deaths as a proportion of the population are 2.5 times higher than in Germany, in the UK, and three times higher than Spain, Italy, and France. So what is going on? Speculation has focused on the looser restrictions we have in the UK when compared to the rest of Western Europe. For example, in most of Europe, mask mandates are still in place, whereas in England, many people stopped wearing them after the government made them optional. There probably is something to that. It was always stupid. We always said on this show it was stupid to end masking, which is a low-cost but effective intervention. There are a few downsides. However, there is reason to think that the impact of masks might be overstated. John Byrne Murdoch at the Financial Times has pointed out that Scotland kept mask mandates in many public places, yet they have even higher rates of COVID than in England. The free charts you see here show rates of COVID in the over 60s, hospital admissions per 100,000 people, and weekly deaths per million people. In each of these respects, Scotland is having an even worse time than England, and that's with masks. So what is going on? Why are both Scotland and England doing so much worse than countries on the continent when Scotland has masks and England doesn't? One potential explanation involves looking at broader categories of behaviour. Again, this is from John Byrne Murdoch in the F. Um, these show that while Scotland and England differ in terms of the proportion of people no longer wearing masks, in both nations, over 25% of the population are no longer avoiding large events. That's the third chart you can see there. That compares to 15% in Germany and France and less than 10% in Spain and Italy. So you can see the real difference 
between England and Scotland and countries on the continent is not so much masks, it seems to be socialising, or at least socialising in large events. However, if you are a fan of nightclubs like me, other explanations for our high rates are available. That's because, as Bern Murdoch points out, Britain's biggest problem might be something unrelated to our behaviour, but rather our levels of immunity. To be precise, vaccination rates we have among children and waning immunity we have among our elderly population. On vaccinating teens, we are way behind our peers. England has vaccinated only 25% of those aged 12 to 17. In Spain, France and Italy, the corresponding figures are between 60 and 80%. On waning immunity, the problem is a little more complex. That's because on one level here, we are victims of our own prior success. We vaccinated people earlier than our neighbours, which means our collective immunity will have waned more. It's also because we used a slightly less effective vaccine, AstraZeneca, instead of the Pfizer and Moderna jabs, which were more universally used on the continent. So we now have a population which has less vaccine-induced immunity than our neighbours. Ash, got a tough question for you. Does this information about immunity mean that I, someone who quite likes to go out to nightclubs every now and again, am absolved from guilt for having attended them I, over the past three months? Or do you think the UK, myself included, has partied a little bit too hard since Freedom Day? I think that you should feel very guilty for what you get up to at nightclubs, but I'm not sure how much that has to actually do with coronavirus. Um, I think that it's, as you say, it's a combination of factors. You've got mask wearing, you've got the waning immunity that comes from having vaccinated lots of people very quickly with AstraZeneca, which we know has got diminished effectiveness when it comes to the Delta variant. We've also got low vaccination rates amongst children. And yes, we've also got people going out to nightclubs. But if you think about these as almost like EQ levels, and so you've got one of these things being lower, and that means that that your uh, infection rate is going higher. Well, it doesn't mean that nightclubs are necessarily the tap that you've got to immediately turn off. I also think that what was with uh, my mouth just completely stopped working there. I also think with schools now being in attendance again, and you're seeing infection rates climbing up amongst school-aged children, and of course, that's an age group which has got much lower vaccination rates than the rest of the population. I don't necessarily think that nightclubs are going to be uh, the main site that you want to tackle. Basically, I think that we need to, you know, get our heads around the fact that vaccinating children is a good thing. Uh, the risks from vaccination are relatively low. The risks from coronavirus are that much higher. And also what that does is that it prevents that sort of first vector of infection, you know, your snotty school-aged kid from infecting the rest of the family when they come home. Um, that to me seems to me seems to be the most critical bit of it. But maybe I'm just saying that because, you know, I'd rather, you know, jab little Tommy in the arm than give up clubbing. <laughs> I, sh I should make clear, you know, if if they decide in a couple of weeks that nightclubs have to close for a couple of months, I'm not, I'm not going to be out protesting in the, in the street. Um, if that's a decision that's made, you know, fine, so be it. But it does seem like there are a number of, you know, lower cost interventions that could be made first. I suppose it is worth saying that... It, if the problem is immunity in the country, while it is disappointing and a massive shame that we dragged our feet when it came to vaccinating teenagers when they rushed ahead on the continent, and that's going to, you know, it means that 
way more kids have got COVID and some of them will have got long COVID. It means more people will have caught it from, from kids in school and that would have passed up the age groups and you will have had people hospitalized and some people, some people dead. The fact that we are low in that respect means that maybe we can get some easy wins when we increase vaccination among those, those age groups. It was announced on the weekend, which is a good thing, that instead of having to wait for a whole school visit from vaccinators, kids in England, it was always the case in Scotland, can just turn up to their local vaccination centre. They don't have to wait for it all to be arranged via school. So we could see um, a bit of an increase in, in the speed of vaccinating kids there. When it comes to the booster campaign, this is particularly... Um, disappointing, I think, especially compared to our rollout at the start of the year. Um, it's been especially disappointing, and I mean, I'm sure very scary for people who are extremely vulnerable. On that front, The Guardian report that surveys by Blood Cancer UK and Kidney Care UK found that for both groups of patients, so that's blood cancer patients and, and kidney patients, between 55% and 60% had yet to be invited to get a third injection. That's seen as particularly vital for conditions which affect people's immune systems, as they are generally less protected by two jabs. The charity said many of those who responded were desperately worried and were struggling to get information about a third vaccination. Some people with blood cancer had resorted to going to vaccination centres without an appointment pleading for a third dose. Blood Cancer UK said this this to me just seems like a, a massive abdication of responsibility from the state we we had a system at the start of the year where we were vaccinating you know 300 400,000 people 500,000 people a day now i think we're vaccinating 150,000 people a day and one that means that we have yeah higher overall rates of of covid in the country but it also means that you've got you know as as those quotes there indicated you've got lots of people who are severely vulnerable to covid-19 who are you know, twiddling their thumbs, waiting. They see that there are, you know, today almost 50,000 cases of COVID in the country. You're not going to feel safe if you have waning immunity because you got vaccinated back in January or February. And now you're just, you're waiting to receive a letter asking you to get that vaccine. So this to me just seems like complete incompetence in the government sitting on their hands. We know we have the vaccines, right? There, there isn't a shortage of overall vaccines. So they're to me, seems no justification whatsoever that this booster campaign has been so slow. I did ask for explanations on, on Twitter today. So a couple that were mentioned was that, you know, you know, they did have to take lots of nurses and get them to do that, that rollout, and now they're back in hospital. Although we had more people in hospital with COVID back in, in January and February than we, do, than we do now. So I find it a little bit inexplicable. I want to discuss one final potential explanation as to why we might have higher rates of COVID than our neighbours. It's less discussed than usual, and that's because it's structural. For example, the UK has some of the lowest sick pay in Europe. That obviously means people will be less able to self-isolate. So that means that even with a similar amount of restrictions, we will probably have more COVID circulating. We also, and this is something I didn't realise, have the highest levels of pension of poverty among the big European countries. As you can see here, 16% of pensioners in Britain live in poverty. That's defined as less than half the median household income or the average household income. That's higher than any of our big neighbours. We know the correlation between poverty and catching COVID and being hospitalised with COVID. Obviously, if you're short of cash, it's going to be harder for you to stay in the house. You won't have that extra money to pay for deliveries or you know, the various um, insulations from the vagaries of life that a decent income 
provides you and also you're more likely to be in poor health which means you're more likely to end up in hospital. Ash, um, we discussed inequalities actually last Wednesday because we were talking about that MP report and one of the things the MP report sort of recognised is that Britain was particularly hard hit because of the inequalities that are so dominant here compared to some countries on the continent. But it does seem like we do it, you know, every, this is something everyone recognises. You know, you ask Boris Johnson that, he'll say, oh, yes, of course, these terrible inequalities, which mean that we're harder hit by COVID. But it does seem like nothing is being done about it. And actually, we're going in the opposite direction with things like the, the £20 universal credit cut. So, I mean, I'm feeling a bit depressed about this. I don't know if you've got sort of a uh, how the pandemic can be mobilised to actually fight for a more equal country instead of, you know, this. I, I sort of, I'm in a, a zone of disappointment at the moment. I think the best realistically you're going to get out of this Tory government when it comes to dealing with the forces behind those healthcare inequalities is a bit of tinkering around the edges when an issue becomes so politically toxic that they have to then, you know, make the U-turn. You saw this uh, with free school meals, for instance. But ultimately, one of the reasons why they're never going to be able to get to the core of the issue is because that means dealing with and confronting how our economy is organized. So there's one way of looking at uh, healthcare outcomes, not just simply as a reflection of our body, but as a manifestation in the body of what we value and what we don't in society, particularly with respiratory illnesses. So a friend of mine who's a doctor um, and also like given to kind of poetic uh ways of phrasing himself one of the things that he says is like well the lung is kind of the interface between the body and the rest of the world and i think one of the ways in which that plays out is that where you see an overrepresentation of respiratory illnesses in overcrowded settings in highly polluted settings amongst people who are you know poor who are destitute who are overworked who don't get enough rest all of these things which are socially determined right then you know whether or not we're poor, whether or not we live in an area which has got a high amount of air pollution, whether or not we live in overcrowded accommodation, that's not a reflection of something that is within our bodies. That's a reflection of of, uh, how society has decided to treat us. And so if you wanted to deal with the things which made this country so structurally vulnerable, the fact that you had a high number of elderly patients in hospitals because perhaps they couldn't afford the kind of care that they needed uh, either at home or in a residential setting. Um, The fact that we have so many people who are in overcrowded housing, uh, multi-generational housing, where it's likely if a young person has got coronavirus that you're going to pass it on. The fact that we have got absolutely insulting rates of sick pay, which mean that you can't afford to take the time off if you have this virus or think you might have this virus. All of these things have added up to almost a collective clinical vulnerability for society. And we haven't dealt with any of those things. And that's because this government simply won't. Ash, I have a quiz question for you. News which has broke during the show. The new leader of UKIP is Neil Hamilton of, uh, what's that documentary maker called? God, my mind is Louis Farouk. Neil Hamilton, from my perspective of Louis Farouk fame, he's just been elected leader of UKIP. How many people do you think voted for him? More or less than 100. It's more than 100. Okay, 500? 498. Very good. You win. You're two off. Um, there were 631 people. Guy, Dick Brain. <laughs> Dick Brain. Well, that's in. So Dick Brain was, I think, about two leaders ago. He got 3,000 okay. votes. 
So it's it's easier to become leader of UKIP than when Dick Brain managed it. <laughs> Listen, I can see why 3,000 people voted for a name like Dick Brain. I, I mean, most I of them would just Dick vote, Brain. yeah. If I had a vote in that election, I would have voted for Dick Brain as well. <laughs> <laughs> why wouldn't you? can't believe they didn't keep that guy. Why did he... I, I can't remember why he was forced to resign. They've had um, seven leaders since Nigel Farage stepped down in 2016. So it's, it's not a job that many people keep for long. Although I suppose Neil Hamilton is one of the more experienced people to take on the role. And what a mandate, 498 votes. Let's go to our final story of the evening. A charity has released analysis showing that youth homelessness has increased by 40% over the past five years years. Using data from local authorities, Centrepoint found that in 2019, 121,000 young people presented as homeless or as at acute risk of homelessness. That figure is up from 86,000 in 2016. Even more worrying, this figure won't take into account any extra, any extra homelessness which may have been caused by lockdowns. That means they could go even higher. Centrepoint here have said they have seen a third more calls to their helpline since the start of the pandemic. So that's an indication of of what the the next round of statistics could tell us. In terms of who this impacts, separate figures from The Guardian show that black people are disproportionately affected by homelessness. So as you can see here, and this is using data from the Department for Housing, Communities and Local Government, The Guardian find that 10% of people entitled to homelessness relief are black, despite black people making up only 3.5% of the UK population. In London, the figure is 30%. Um, That's despite black people in the capital making making up only 12.5% of the population. The chief executive of Centrepoint, that's Sayi Oberkin, says he expects these figures to worsen again once cuts to universal credit feed into the system, something that, that comes up on so many topics um, in this show. Ash, they're very sobering statistics. What do you make of them? This is, again, the way in which different areas of policy actually reflect lots of other areas of policy. So particularly when it comes to housing and homelessness, well, obviously this is going to reflect the overrepresentation of young people in the private rental sector, which is the single biggest source of homelessness. Uh, Most people are made homeless after having been in the private rental sector, and then 11% of them simply have been made homeless because the landlord wanted to re-let the property or sell it. Um, Sorry, uh, my cat is playing with the microphone, so hopefully you can still hear me. You've also got, I think, this race angle, which reflects lots of things. One is discrimination against people of color in the private rental sector. So there have been studies which have been done and also undercover stings, which have shown that if you are a person of color or you've got a name which is read as being somebody who isn't white, then it is much harder for you to find a lettings agent or a landlord who wants you to sign their lease. So that's going to have knock-on effects down the line, particularly then when you add to that uh, the overrepresentation of people of colour in precarious forms of employment, the overrepresentation of people of colour in the prison systems, so then coming out of it is much harder to find a home. All of these things then add up to uh, inequalities and overrepresentations of particular groups, young people, people of colour amongst the homeless population. And I think there's also a third aspect to this, which is disability, mental health issues, which I don't think have been mentioned so far. So you see a disproportionate number of people who are made homeless, yes, because they have been 
placed in the kind of financial precarity, which we know disproportionately impacts uh, people with disabilities, people with mental health issues, but also both of these things are then exacerbated by the experience of homelessness. So yeah, it's no surprise to me that those figures make for particularly grim reading and that what they show us is that our society makes certain classes of people more vulnerable than others. So we are going to watch a clip now because we should mention that Ash has a brilliant video out today on Navara Media about um, something that, of course, um, very obviously impacts homelessness, which is the housing crisis in this country and the root of it, which is landlords, property speculation and landlords. Let's face it, landlords are kind of bums. You want to buy properties in cheap areas, you want to rent them high, and you want to have systems in place and property managers that can make it passive income so that you can have financial freedom. That's called property investing. That much equity. Follow me. According to Shelter, 45% of private tenants in England are victims of illegal behaviour. One in four have had landlords enter their homes without permission. 22% of tenants reported essential safety or household appliances like smoke alarms, central heating or even water broken when they moved in. And 9% have reported violent, threatening or harassing behaviour from their landlord or lettings agent. What about us? I'll tell you what about you. Stop relying on me to pay your food. We're buying that guy's food. Well, as tenants, we are. Um, Ash, um, it's an excellent video. Our audience can go and check that out, watch the whole thing. Um, anything surprising you found researching that? Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things that I found really surprising was the sheer number of people who had been victims of illegal behavior by landlords. So that meant 43% of people had experienced key amenities being broken. Um, 10% of people, nearly 10% of people had experienced harassing or threatening behavior from their landlords. And for me, I just don't think that in any other consumer relationship, we would put up with that level of maltreatment from the person who's supposed to be selling us a service. But because of the structural vulnerability inherent in the tenant-landlord relationship, this is actually just a feature of the private rental sector. So that was the thing which really surprised me. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me because I've, you know, I've known it for so long, but the thing that just absolutely infuriates me is how, I mean, landlords just don't exist. It is like feudalism because it is, you know, in my life, I work 60% of my hours and I get to keep the money and I work 40% of my hours, which goes directly to my landlord. So that, that, that is how feudalism worked. Apparently it was less than 40%. I think it was maybe a third of your time you had to toil the land of your, again, your landlord, um, and you would toil your own land two thirds of the time. Now I have to toil for my landlord even more than the serfs did. Now, I mean, my quality of life is probably significantly better than your average medieval serf, but still the injustice of it is it's shocking, isn't it? I'm especially annoyed now, Ash, because I'm after paying them 40% of everything, they, they get to kick me out because they're selling the house. What can be done? What can be done is that one, I think that we need to make being a landlord so prohibitively expensive that nobody wants to do it. Yeah. Right? So you do just have to discourage the ownership of second homes. Um, homes should be lived in by the people who are paying for it. And landlords aren't the ones paying for it. We're the ones paying for it. We're paying off their mortgage. Um, and so that's 
the first thing is that actually, you know, tax them till the pips squeak. Mm -hmm. Second thing is you've seen this in Berlin as well. You have had legislation come in to essentially expropriate properties from the biggest commercial landlords. So it is something which can be done. It's happened in other countries. There's no reason why we can't do it here. And then the third thing is, well, people do need the availability of cheap rental properties. They used to be called council housing. Now, in the video, I don't take a starry-eyed view of council housing because you had things like the Ronan Point disaster, which were the result of, you know, criminally poor building standards when it came to some of these concrete prefabs. However, that wasn't the case for all council housing, particularly in London. You still see examples of very well-made, very beautiful, very pleasant council-built homes. And that's something which I think could very much happen again if there was political will to do it. Um, it is an investment by the state. They own that asset and they're able to set rents at social levels, at genuinely affordable levels. It's expropriate, it's tax, it's build. Yeah, no, I wholly agree. I suppose the, the flip side of taxing, you could make it more expensive or you could make it less profitable with rent caps and then like super, super long-term tenants tenancy agreement so it's sort of just less attracted to be a landlord and more attracted to be a renter um thank you everyone for joining us tonight ash it has been an absolute pleasure as always i'll, I'll let you go have some time with your cat and we'll be back on wednesday at 7 p.m for now you've been watching tisky sour on navara media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navara media go to navaramedia.com support